Hi, I'm Zane Lowe, and this is Songs for Life. This is the show where we ask our guests to choose 10 songs that have soundtracked the key moments in their life. Today, we're spending time with award-winning actor, writer, and producer, Josh Gad. You'll know Josh either through his work on Broadway, where he got his first big break in the life-changing role in the hit musical, The Book of Mormon, or you would have seen him become a big star in TV and movies like Beauty and the Beast and Murder on the Orient Express. He's also known to kids around the world, of course, as the voice of Olaf the Snowman in Disney's Frozen. And more recently, he's created a brand new show on Apple TV Plus called Central Park. To hear all the songs in this episode, search for the playlist Songs for Life in Apple Music. Josh Gad, you've chosen a selection of songs that mean something to you on your life's journey to date. And it's always important to contextualize, I think, that you know when we stop at a point like this where you're so productive and so successful, there's so much more to achieve, but it's really nice to be able to find out what got you here. So thanks for taking the time and we appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure. I, I wish... I could be in studio with you, but I'm grateful that I now have the skill set of being a sound engineer, <laughs> which is uh, something I never anticipated before this. Uh, your debut EP just around the corner. <laughs> um, your catalog now of appearances in movies as a lead and also as a, as a scene stealer, quite frankly, is long and pretty remarkable. Looking back on all the things that you've done, can you sort of pick two or three things that you're most proud of that are really career-driven? You know, Frozen, obviously, is such a big part of my journey. Beauty and the Beast is a very special one for me. Book of Mormon, for sure. Nothing can prepare you for the hilarity of the Book of Mormon. Nothing. (laughs) It really is one of the most brilliantly constructed, incredibly directed and made and cast musicals of all time and a huge smash for you. When you got the lead role in the original cast on Broadway back in 2011, what were your feelings about what you were reading, seeing, and preparing yourself for? Because one cannot forget how groundbreaking and shocking that musical was when it first hit Broadway. Well, you have to remember my journey with Book of Mormon actually goes back to around 2008. Mm-hmm. I had gotten a call from Bobby Lopez, who at the time wrote Avenue Q. And he said, listen, I'm working on something with the guys who wrote South Park, Trey Parker, Matt Stone. We're going to do a reading of it. It's right now. It's just one act. And I'm like, yeah, this sounds amazing. Send it my way. And he sent me the script. And I was laughing. First, you have that song, Hello. My name is Elder Price. You have that whole thing. And then you have two by two, we're walking door to door. And it's great. And then you get to a song called Hasadika Ipawai. And I call, I listened to the song and I called up my agent and I said, there is no fucking way on earth I can do this show. And <laughs> she was like, why? And I go, because I will be killed if I do this. She goes, well, it's a South Park, guys. Of course, they're going to, you know, of course, they're going to do something outrageous. I go, yes, but, and I played a snippet of the song. And she goes, oh, oh yeah, no, you can't do that. And, uh, <laughs> and, and I sort of was just like, yeah, but at the same time, I really want to be in that room for the first time that people hear this shit. And we did it at this small little theater, about 60 people in the audience. And we get to this song and I'm white knuckling it. And all of a sudden we start singing and one person falls out of their chair laughing and everybody else looks shocked and one by one like dominoes they all fall and succumb to the outrageousness and the insanity of a song where the lyrics are 
fuck you, God, over and over again being sung by this African ensemble, which seemed like it's never going to work. And lo and behold, 10 years later, it's still running on Broadway and it never ceases to amaze me. Is it true that you got that part by accident? Yeah. Bobby had heard this Christmas album recorded by the cast of Spelling Bee. And one of the voices on it was this really beautiful male tenor. And Bobby assumed that that voice was me. Thank God he assumed that. He was incorrect. It was my co-star, Barrett Foa. <laughs> but uh, but it, it all... This is a once upon a time in Hollywood moment, yes. you know, where Leo DiCaprio is like, ah, I never... Didn't you almost get that part, that Steve McQueen role? Like, that is like up there. Yep. That is up there. And that's how I got the phone call to do Bug of Mormon. What's your favorite actual memory of doing the show? I would say there are three moments that stick out to me. One is the first preview. And I'll never forget knowing in that moment everything clicked that this was going to work. Next memory that I I cherish is there's a line in one of my songs where I say, I am Africa, just like Bono. I am Africa. (laughs) And I look out and who is sitting directly in front of me, but Bono. Uh, That was pretty incredible. Another memory that stands out for me. Wait, 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 pause on that. Not many people I've ever spoken to have said just like Bono and stare directly stare at Bono. Stare directly at now, I, I know, I know Bono well, and I know he has a good sense of humor and he's a self-effacing human. Can you remember what the look on his face was when you said the line? He had a mixture of glee and also I could kill you with one wave <laughs> of my pen and a checkbook. Um, and, and I, (laughs) wow. And then the final memory, and there were so many of these, but my last performance ever of the show, Philip Seymour Hoffman, who's an idol of mine was in the audience. I had never met him before. And he, uh, he came up to me after the show had ended and he goes, you know what? You're really special. And I hope we get to work together one day. And I was like, this is literally the dream. This is why I did this. The song that I define this period of my life by is Outcasts. Hey ya. Banger. Because Banger. It, it really is. And, and it's one of those songs that is just such a celebration and also a like, fuck you to any doubters out there. And we had so many doubters. I mean, there were so many mm. people who were just like, this is never going to work. Nobody's ever going to want to see anything like this. And mm. we, we just kept working it, kept working it, kept working it for three years. And when we finally opened in March of 2011, it was just this moment of release. And this song really does define that moment in my life. Elusive Andre 3000 at his most weird and wonderful and brilliant subversive best with Hey Ya Man. That song just, everybody of every description of every age loves that song. It reaches into you and just, you can't help but have the biggest smile on your face. 
we're going to weave back around to Central Park at some point, right. but we've got to start somewhere. And the obvious thing would be to start chronologically, but I'm a hits guy. I want right. to go straight in for the hits. Yeah. You know, you are now, there's no question about it, the world's most famous snowman. Um, right. Right. You've surpassed Frosty. I don't know if I want to hear from Frosty's lawyers, but. You've surpassed Falcon End. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. That's a that's a deep cinematic. <laughs> that's a deep cut right there. What is the third uh, in this triumvirate of famous snowmen? I'm checked out. I'm checked out after two. I rushed Falcon in. <laughs> uh, I don't know if I, I don't rushed know if I have another one there. Uh, no, Olaf. The is, <laughs> Olaf has definitely made his mark in the pantheon of uh, of deep cut cinematic snowmen. Frozen was an accident. Uh, like a lot of choices in my life. I have these kind of, as we all do, these pivotal turning points in our in our lives. And I had left Book of Mormon, which was such a big part of my life. And I started making a bunch of choices for all the wrong reasons. And I, I was sort of looking for something that spoke to me artistically again, because I had uh, let's say, uh, chase the dollar signs instead of the creative. And, and that's not a right. good way to, to do anything. And, and one of my all-time favorite performances ever was Robin Williams in Aladdin and sitting in a dark theater and, and looking at my mom and saying, I want to do that one day. I, I want to, that is really cool what he's doing. And this comic relief, iconic sort of character in a Disney movie, which is so interesting because these movies are some of the only movies that seem to stand the test of time. And there aren't many films like that, you know? And and I think that Frozen sort of became this touchstone and allowed me to refocus. And so the song that seems to best define this moment for me in terms of taking control is actually Eminem's Lose Yourself. That is a down and out boxes anthem right there. Yeah, and it's funny because you wouldn't necessarily pair Olaf and Frozen with Lose Yourself. (laughs) Uh, At least any sane person would not do that. And I think that this song spoke to so many of us of my generation as this anthem to, you know, wipe yourself off, get up off your ass. And you're going to take a lot of hits and punches. And man, did I take a lot of hits and punches trying to break into to acting. Yeah. But at the end of the day, I put my head down and I fought right back and I got back up and I said, no, I'm going to take this opportunity. I'm going to do what I need to do with it. Lose Yourself, just Eminem in his finest. Lose Yourself is this anthem that I think uh, even all these years later remains as potent and as strong as ever. And I am so enamored with it and what it's meant to me. You know, you talked about taking the hits and taking the punches. It's funny because people often trace that back to a moment in your career. That's when most people see the timeline begin. But in almost every case, in every conversation I've ever had with anyone who's achieved great things, that timeline goes way, way further back. And in fact, the roots of that start at school, at home, internally, that struggle, that feeling misunderstood, that, that 
developing something to fight against and therefore fight for is the key moment to driving all dreams and all ambitions, I think. There's a revenge therapy to this. And as a child, I wondered whether or not you faced those things and they set you on this path to some degree. Absolutely. I'm a child of the 1980s. I was born in 1981. It was a simpler time. We were allowed to leave our houses back then. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> I had a, a as perfect a childhood as I could have hoped for with all the imperfections that come along with that. And by that, I mean that, you know, I lived in a beautiful home. I grew up in South Florida. I had a loving family. And of course, all of that uh, was shattered when my parents got divorced when I was six years old. And, and my That's brothers- That's a powerful age too. It was because you're, you're, you're fully conscious and aware of everything. You have a really deep understanding of your environment and of yourself. And you're starting to- you're starting to come into your own. And when my parents got divorced and my brothers subsequently moved out because they were going off to college, it was like somebody put, pulled a reset button. You were a funny guy. I mean, obviously you're a funny guy, but you were a funny guy at school. And I was never really a funny guy. I tried to be a funny guy and I hung out with funny guys, but really funny guys I knew were the ones who had built an armor around themselves and had protected themselves through humor. Was that the case for you? Were you using humor to identify how to deal with this pain and get grow stronger through it? I was overweight at a pretty early age, I think, in large part because of my parents separating and, and mm. the sort of change that occurred quite quickly. And I found... Really early on, I, I remember my parents taking me to the Catskill Mountains, uh, which is something I guess every good Jewish parent does when a child is coming of age in the 1980s. And and we went to a comedy club, like a Borscht Belt comedy club. And I remember I was about four years old and I sat in this theater and all the jokes went over my head. I didn't understand a single freaking joke, but what I did know is that I was laughing harder than anybody else. And it was the power of that laughter and the power of what it meant to make others laugh that really became a very potent source of defense mechanisms, as you said. Mm -hmm. uh, I saw it as a weapon. I remember one incident where I had just seen the movie My Cousin Vinny, and I there was somebody who was bullying me on the basketball court. And I was with my buddy and I started doing the whole Joe Pesci monologue from uh, the scene where he goes into the bar and he's talking to the guy yeah. who's threatening yeah. to beat the shit out of him. And he looks at the cast that he's wearing. And this guy who was picking on me also was in a cast. And I did this whole thing and it totally went over this guy's head. But my buddy was laughing so hard. And to this day, is just like, it's one of the greatest moments I've ever seen in my life. Just like little kid doing a Joe Pesci monologue that this other bully has no idea where it's from. Uh, it was it was so bizarre. But the song that sort of defines this period for me, and is one of those songs that you can sort of taste and smell when you hear it, where you were, is "Take on Me" by Aha, and the song was one of those songs that was also such a milestone because it was the first time I ever kissed a girl was at sleepaway camp. I'll never forget that. And, and it was like one of those anthems that seemed to find its way 
into so many moments from my quote unquote childhood. And there's something about not only the song itself, but the music video that is ethereal and dreamlike. And my childhood plays out in my memory much like a dream. There are so many elements of it that I think I have in subsequent years that I've exaggerated mm. or that I've imagined being slightly more romanticized than they were. But I was going to say, Josh, I was going to say, you couldn't have done Wonder Years, the 80s special, and had the main <laughs> character kiss a girl and picked a better song to be playing in the background. That's great. I'm like, you know, you know, deep down, it was probably something, it was probably something way less awesome than that. Oh, no, no, it was, it was, <laughs> Definitely something less awesome than that. But in my mind, that is 100% the song that was playing when I kissed Danielle in the giant gymnasium at Camp Blue Ridge in the mountains of Georgia. And I- I never forget it. I'll never forget it. In order to get to Broadway, Josh, you got to take your first step on a stage. And that comes from making your friends laugh, feeling better about yourself, protecting yourself, and then deciding, you know what, actually, I might, this might be the only thing I'm really good at right now. I better do something with it. And so you've got to make that step and get on a stage. Can you remember what your first performance was like, where it was? You say you can't remember anything, but I, I, somehow I think you might remember that. My first performance I ever did that I remember was in Beth Shalom, my elementary school. And it was, I played a character named the Simcha Machine, which in Hebrew means miracles. And I remember my song, it was, I'm the Simcha Machine, I run loose in this city and no one can stop me. My songs are so witty. I'm sure that there was a special, that there's a special place in hell for whatever teacher wrote that for uh, me to sing in a box costume. Um, but but uh, my my first- I swear in those situations, Josh, they go back to the teacher's common room and they're just like, I can't believe we got away with oh, that. Oh yeah. Oh, absolutely. But that's elementary school. And then I go transition into high school eventually. And my high school, that moment where I started to really take it seriously, that was around uh, my freshman and sophomore year of high school. And I- I was cast as Tevya in Fiddler on the Roof. And that's sort of when I realized I wanted to go from not just making this a hobby, but making it a career. And the, the song that I picked to define these teenage years mm. is Bittersweet Symphony by The Verve. Wow. And, and it's a song that I think really speaks to all of those elements that come into play when you're in high school and you're defining yourself and you're finding yourself and your your purpose and, and all of these things. And Bittersweet Symphony was a song that, like Take On Me, was ubiquitous, where I would always sort of be in a place with a person in a defining moment and the song would come on. And I remember just this feeling all these emotions. Specifically, I remember my final like graduation party where I went to my buddy, my best friend Seth's house and and it was playing and I just remember crying and thinking to myself, this is all going to end now and, and this new chapter of our lives is going to begin. 
And that song really did define not only that transition, but that entire period. No change, I can change, I can change, I can change, but I'm here in my mold. You know, whenever I hear someone talk about that golden era of late teens getting ready to grow up, I'm always like, well, you let's see what's around the corner. We'll see you in 30 seconds when this song comes to its natural conclusion. We talked about the golden years of leaving high school, getting ready for college, getting ready for university. And those are tough years because then you're out in the wide world and all that confidence is put to the test. What were your memories of those early acting auditions in this notoriously competitive environment? There was a moment early on when I first came to California where my agent at the time, he was an absolute jackass. He sent me on one of my first auditions and I get there and you have to sign in on an audition. And I read the sides and I was very confused because it was to play like this, like really handsome quarterback in like a, in like a varsity blues kind of thing. And I'm like, I don't know if you've seen my work or what I do, but this is really not me. It's like, just go, just go. And I get there and the guy reading for the same role before me, I look down at the sign and and it's Nick fucking Lachey. And I'm like, what? (laughs) Why am I going out for a role that Nick Lachey is going? None of this makes sense. This is not, look at my headshot. It'll take you one second. Uh, and and it was just, uh, uh, it was literally like a treadmill of rejection at that point in my life. Do you life. remember and who else you used to see on that circuit outside of Nick Lachey that you would bump sure. into? Because that's always fascinating to me. People like TJ Miller. One of my first auditions that where I ever came really close, I auditioned for this movie. And it was it was one of the best auditions I've ever given. And, and, and honestly, that tape, from this audition of this movie I'm about to uh, disclose to you, that audition tape got me so many opportunities for the next year because it just kept being shared and people were like, take a look at this. So I go in for Ben Stiller and his producing partners. And, you know, Ben, he's amazing, but he's also like intense. and, And he looks at me and he's like, you know, I'm sick, don't shake my hand. And I'm like, I'm not going to. And so I go into I go into my audition and suddenly I see the ice breaking and he's like, he's actually opening up and he's he seems very cordial and very inviting. And I feel like I nailed it. And then I get a call being like, they love you. This is it. They they think you're you're golden for this. And then of course I get a call another week later and they're like, they went with Jack Black. And it was for Tropic wow. Thunder. It was for Tropic Thunder. You know, it was a lot of that. Like it was, I, I was up for a role in Avatar and James Cameron looked at me after the audition was like, this is yours. And of course it wasn't mine. I'm convinced that James put me in the little CGI Avatar costume and realized that like he didn't <laughs> really want the character to be a, a stocky Jewish blue Smurf. So I, I I definitely had a lot of rejections and nearly gave up, which is defined by a song called Runaway Train by Soul Asylum. It's one of these periods where I actually almost went to law school because I was so tired of the rejection. 
And my mom, God bless her, when I told her I was going to law school, I thought she was going to be so happy. And instead, she said, I'm, I'm really disappointed in you. And I said, why? And she goes, because you've spent 15 years dreaming of doing this and only two and a half years trying to live out that dream. And I think that that's a cop-out. That is the definition of tough love right there. That is what you want tough love to be, which is the hard word from a beautiful place, you know? And it's a great song. Uh, run away, train, never come back. Run away on a one-way train. Oh, it's great. It's such a big hit. It's such a powerful song that Soul Asylum, uh, Runaway Train is chosen by Josh right now on Apple Music. It is. Runaway Train is so haunting. It's and and it and it really does capture that sense of never giving up. And so comes the big break. You know, it's so funny over the course of my life and talking to so many really talented, gifted artists and creatives who have gone on to achieve great things, more often than not, that moment when it all starts to come together is at that point when you're just about to let go, but you don't. But you're right. about to, and you genuinely feel like you want to. But for one reason, you don't, and then you carry on. And that big break came through. But it was also a big break for you. But on paper, I wouldn't consider it to be like, wow, he got Avatar. You know, you got a very, very critically acclaimed production and a pivotal role in it. But it, it still puts you on a path to work, right? It was like, okay, so it begins. My, I'm not at the top of the tree yet. I've still got to climb the branches. So at this time, we're talking around 2005. I'm, like I said, I'm about to give up. My mom tells me not to. I go in on a whim and audition for this role that's opening on Broadway in a show called the 25th Annual Putnam County Spelling Bee. And the role mm. is important because the actor playing the role on Broadway at this time just won a Tony for it. And I had literally nothing to my name in terms of credits other than one guest star on ER. <laughs> and so like professionally speaking, I was not doing very well. And I go in against all of these much better known actors and people who had to find themselves already on the Broadway stage. And I'm vying to audition to replace a Tony winner. And I go in for the director, James Lapine, and I go in for uh, the producers. And I do my thing and I make a joke at the beginning of my audition. I get about 20 seconds into the audition and James cuts me off and that's it. And he calls me up to the back of, of the theater and I'm like, what is going on? So I go to the back of the theater and he says to me, um, I don't think this is for you. And I said, well, excuse me? He goes, well, I don't think you take this seriously. And I said, I don't understand what, what that means. He said, well, you came out on the stage and you cracked a joke. And I said, well, forgive me. This is probably the biggest opportunity of my life. I just came out on stage in front of 20 people who are going to determine whether or not I get this opportunity. And I figured I had two choices. I could either break the ice or projectile vomit over you and your colleagues. So forgive me for choosing the former. And, you know, we had this conversation. And at the end of it, I was certain I didn't get it. And I went backstage and I said to the other guy, congratulations, you got the role. And I went back to my hotel room, started sobbing, started packing my luggage and my agent called me. And at this time I hadn't even seen the show because I really couldn't afford tickets to it. And my agent says, 
the director left you a ticket to go see Spelling Bee tonight. And I said, why the fuck would I want to go see Spelling Bee tonight? And she says, because James, the director, feels that it's important that if you're going to take over in two weeks, you should probably know what you're going to do. And that was my first break. Something really struck me about the way that you told that story. And I was sort of cherry picking these kind of observations as you were describing how you handled the whole thing. From telling the joke in the first place to following up the question, why did you tell a joke with another joke? To going back onto the stage and sort of kind of throwing in the towel to one of your colleagues, which is a really tough thing, not just for you, but for the person who's hearing that, because it's like, how do I take that? To going to back to your hotel room and being like, why the fuck would I want to go back to that? <laughs> and I realized this is probably the moment in your life when you're at your lowest professionally and angriest, right? Because those are all rage responses in some respects. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. And I had nothing to lose at this point and everything Mm. to gain. And I think that's when your back is up against the wall and you're you're most scared. And it's why I chose this song because it, it was a period of rage. I'm somebody who really does value work and value doing everything I can to put myself in a position to succeed. But man, does it hurt to get rejection after rejection after rejection after rejection until you collect those rejections and you realize that in totality, they do make you stronger and they do make you resilient. And this period in my life, I think is best summed up by Kanye West's Stronger. Were you good with the ladies when you were young? Did comedy work for you? Comedy and confidence and a healthy dose of insecurity and family-driven anxiety? When I was young, I was very insecure. And I was, even though I was very confident, when it came to women, I was very insecure. My first love was in high school. And it was this girl who was a year younger than me. And that was it. I was going off to college. You know, I was sure that we were going to end up together. Can I ask what her name was? It's an important detail. Yeah, for it, is, it is. I'll probably be sued by her. Her name was and, and remains Laura. And she went off to college and realized, oh, there's other fish in the sea. And I was like, yes, but those fish are, are not for eating. They just allow them to keep swimming. And she, uh, she wanted to go fishing. I was devastated. Ugh. But that ride from having everything with this girl to having nothing was... Uh, oh, it's an, it's an ugly cry. It's the kind of cry you would hear from a dove, which is why... I chose for this period in my life. <laughs> I'm starting to realize that so many. Oh, there it is. Dig, if you will, the picture of you and I engaged in a kiss. Oh, I love the lyrics of this song so this is where much. I just sit here creepily eating my lunch while you sing Prince to me over FaceTime. <laughs> Laura, this song goes out to you wherever you are now. I hope you remember how much you broke my heart. How did you know that your wife was the one? I didn't. I actually, when we first met, we were doing a reading of a show. 
And she laughed and she sounded like Fran Drescher. And I was like, oh God, that girl's got the most annoying laugh. <laughs> <So laughs> Best impressions is so funny. Uh, and I was like, I was like, uh, and she thought I was gay. Uh, because I, my my best friend Seth and I were always together, and she assumed that for whatever reason he was my partner, yeah. and, and so our first impressions of each other were not wildly convincing. So we had done this show together. Now this show called All in the Timing by David Ives, and over the course of playing husband and wife in this show, we just started to fall head over heels for each other. And one thing led to another, and we just hit it off, and the rest uh, is history. It could have all been so different, you know, if you hadn't uh, been quite so persistent. She was in a relationship of five years with a guy who's much better looking than me, a brilliant artist. He's a rapper and a songwriter, and he looks like Mark Wahlberg, and I love him to death. His name is Adam, and he actually came to our wedding. But, you know, I think that that was organically coming to an end. And, and um, yeah. you know, it's it's one of those things where life has a funny way of of insisting on things. And it kept insisting that that this girl was the one. I'm saying, low. we're talking to Josh Gad and um, the music is amazing. I'm really enjoying our conversation and getting to know you and, you know, hearing these stories of, you know, hard work and persistence and the support of your family and and a whole lot of talent, you know, getting you into a place where we have a brand new show called Central Park on Apple TV Plus. And as you said, you know, you're very, very proud of this this show. And we're going to talk about it in a in a minute, but we're going to get back to wife and family and how that how that balances for you as someone who's so dedicated to your craft. And I'm talking about recently because we're all at home with our families now appreciating that opportunity as one silver lining. But on a regular day, if there is such a thing to come, how you balance out being so busy and taking advantage of the right side of success after you made that decision and listened to Eminem's advice and also <laughs> being you know, a father and a husband. I could lie and say a, a really, I think... I've got it all together answer. The truth is it's really fucking hard. Work takes me a lot of places. And a lot of those places require me to leave this family that I love desperately behind. Mm. I've got two little girls who are six and nine. And one of the silver linings of this moment is that it actually has given me a chance to, to be present physically. And the song that um, that really sort of speaks to this moment is a song that's one of the lesser celebrated and lesser, I think, appreciated songs in the Beatles canon. It's Real Love is is one of those songs that puts a smile on my face because the Beatles remain, I think, the greatest band of all time. I know there are many arguments to follow after I say that comment, but- uh, That's pretty locked. Yes, I mean, look, I'm a I'm a huge Stones fan too, and I, and I think well, I, I think, just had this out with Mick Jagger, by the way, because Paul McCartney came out and said the Beatles are better than the Stones, and so I spoke to Mick the other day and said, "Is this true?" And Mick goes, "Oh, he's a sweetheart, oh, oh Paul, yeah, no, oh yeah, oh, there's no real competition going on." But I will say this: one band is still touring, doing stadiums, and the other band doesn't exist. Boom! And I was oh, like, "Oh my god!" And oh I was like, "You god. old shitters! You old shitters are the best! You still can't let it go!" I, I love, fucking love it. I love that. I love that. So you know, for me, this song represents 
I think exactly what you just said. What what if, right? What if that band was able to do just one more? And I remember when this was released with the anthology album and I, I heard it for the first time and I just got goosebumps. It speaks to, I think, the joy, the love, and that feeling of fulfillment that I get from having these pieces in my life that are my wife and my two girls. And just like the Beatles, we have our ups and downs, you know, Um, but it is real love and it's pure and it's true. And it's something that at least at this point in my life is what defines me the most. Talking to Josh Gad right now, tracing not only career-defining moments, personal ones too, uh, that have established this this person right here sitting before me in the comfort of your home, Josh, and the comfort of mine, and we're doing the best we can in the circumstances, and I'm enjoying it. I'm having a really good time. I appreciate it. Me too. Me too. Which brings us to Central Park, which is your latest show, and we're thrilled you brought it to Apple TV+. Plus. For people who haven't seen it, it's an animation. Uh, Once again, it's a musical comedy, but this time it's about an unusual family who live in a castle in New York Central Park, and you reunited with Kristen Bell and, uh, of course, other big names in the world of musical theater. What was your hope for this show? I looked at Lauren when we started to do this and I said, this has to be an event musical series. It can't just be a musical by name. I want it to live and breathe music. I want the characters to sing songs that aren't just filling up time in an episode, but are as iconic as anything we would hear on a stage or on the big screen. And that process was tedious, expensive, long, Mm. and backbreaking. Mm. But I feel very confident in saying that I think this show is a game changer. And from what I can tell, this show also has some pretty important messages too in terms of the way that we relate to each other, how we prioritize what is important, how we use our available space for good or for bad. Uh, Am I sort of on the right path for this show in terms of what you were trying to achieve with it? You couldn't have said it better had I given you a scripted document from publicity. <laughs> I, I, I genuinely have never been prouder of anything that I've, I've certainly been a part of or helped create. And, and I say that because Central Park is not only a celebration of music, as you said. And Lauren Bouchard, my co-creator and the creator of Bob's Burgers and I, along with Nora Smith, set out to do something truly different than anything that has come before in that we didn't just want to do a show with music. We didn't want to spoof music genres. We wanted to tell a story where the characters had no choice but to break out into song. And Mm. in going about that, we set a very ambitious task for ourselves. And we've created a a musical uh, in 27-minute episodes that has four major song moments sung by our tremendous cast, including Kristen Bell, Titus Burgess, Stanley Tucci, Catherine Hahn, Leslie Odom Jr., and David Diggs, both from Hamilton fame. That's the Avengers. That's some power performers that you've brought into this show, yeah. Josh. I'm very proud of collecting the musical theater Avengers. You know, being, uh, being someone who can achieve things through the value of success and use it the right way to create more value for yourself and those around you, but there are definitely low points and there are times when the pressure gets on top of you. And I guess... 
judging from the selection you've chosen to tie into this moment where we're kind of taking a broad look at, at your career, you've chosen something that's mellow, something that I, I feel is a reflective version of a very, very great song. This is a song that regardless of where I find myself in my life, it's one that truly makes me cry. And that is a cover of the Pixies, Where Is My Mind by Max and Siren. And it is the purest form of this incredible and iconic song. It makes me sit and think and stop. And it's, you know, as, as I think we pass through what I hope is one of the more difficult periods of my lifetime, it's a reminder of the beauty of the simple things we as humans are capable of, right? You've introduced me to that, a beautiful cover of the Pixies, Where Is My Mind? That shocks me. Listen, uh, before we say our official goodbyes, there's always that little present under the Christmas tree that people have forgotten. At about 2 p.m., you find it. It's wrapped up. It's small, but it's meaningful. And that little present for everybody who's listening and watching this right now is, uh, and maybe you already have, but have you ever, ever officially confirmed who it was that distracted you during Book of Mormon when you forgot your lines? I have not ever officially done that, but God, I got nothing to lose now. It was uh, the lead actor on a show called Entourage. And uh, <laughs> Adrian. Adrian. And I was, uh, let's say, really fucking pissed off. So, Adrian, the next time you're out there in a dark theater <laughs> with a bunch of people on stage performing for you, I would ask for a little bit more respect. And I wow. promise to show you the same respect when I watch you on a stage. Uh, all joking aside, I hope you're doing well, Adrian. I still love you. I still love you very much. Listen, we all got to check ourselves. You know what I mean? We all got to check other people. We all got to check ourselves. I love that. That's great. That's great. <laughs> Josh Gad, God bless. It's been so wonderful to spend this time with you and to be able to talk about life and, and play music and what great taste you have. I can't fault it, not for a second. Every one of these songs means something to me and millions of other people, but in our own way. And to be able to put stories around them has been a real joy. And, um, you know, stay safe and stay well out there whilst we're in this new abnormal. And hopefully when the new normal arrives, we'll be able to have some wine and some whiskey. And uh, I, I mean, I'll sure as fuck know you well by then, bro. Trust me. <laughs> uh, amen to that, as will all of your listeners. I really appreciate this. This was, uh, this was a blast. One thing is for sure, Josh, God willing, you're turning 40 next year. And yeah. as someone who's crossed that line, let me tell you, it sucks. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I'm not, I'm not very happy about the prospects of turning 40 in my fucking house. Uh, uh, Would you party? Any... Would you have a big party? Are you a partier? Uh, yeah, I was. I wanted to do a destination party and, and God knows that that's not going to happen. But, you know, as I reflect on where I am and what's coming my way, I remain as grateful as ever. And on a personal front, I'm really excited about the future more than I've ever been. I have season one of Central Park on Apple. And then I have a couple of movies that I'm hopefully going to shoot when things are a little more calm, mm. including a, a sequel to Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, one of my favorite movies of all time. It makes sense because you've chosen an optimistic song to finish our journey. You've chosen, again, if you're going to write 
the script for your life, Josh, and you're going to pick some songs for some moments. I'm afraid this one's already been taken by Cameron, so you may have to ask him to pick another <laughs> song to help you soundtrack your life. <laughs> oh, ladies and gentlemen, Free Fallen by the late Tom Petty. It is one of those songs that just absolutely gets under my skin and makes it feel like it's all going to be okay. Because we are free-falling right now. We're free-falling into this darkness of uncertainty. But even so, there's hope. There, There is hope on the other side. There is light at the end of the tunnel. I have to believe that. And this song really, to me, speaks to that. It speaks to this this moment that we all find ourselves in and we all have each other. And despite the fact that so many of us are falling right now, it's been amazing to see our fellow citizens picking us up and saying, I'll catch you. 